On the back table back there, as usual, was a little half sheet note uh, if you want to get that. And we'll use that here in just a little bit. If you want to open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 24, we'll get to Matthew 24 here in just a little bit. And then we'll be looking at several other passages, especially in the, especially in the Old Testament tonight. Before we get to Matthew 24 here in just a, just a little bit, we want to spend some time as a church family praying together tonight and, and talking about God's work in, in our church and our lives. If you flip it over to the back, that little note sheet, I tried to list some prayer needs that I knew of down there at the bottom. I, I'm certain I missed some. Or um, I do want to point out that Bob Jones, some of you would have known uh, Bob. Bob's been here a long, long time from the earliest days of Emmaus, but Bob passed away recently, and his memorial service is going to be Monday morning at 10.30, so if you're a part of a Sunday school class connected with him, or you've known Bob and you want to be a part of that memorial service, it'll be here at Emmaus next Monday morning at, at 10.30. Someone was telling me that Debbie Tolley might be even going back to the hospital or the ER this evening. They didn't have to. Is that what? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Thanks to everybody who's helped take meals on Wednesday night. That's turned out to be a really great opportunity to connect with some people and minister. And so thanks to everybody who's done that. If you're interested on Wednesday night, just getting here a little bit early and going out and taking a meal to a family who's in need or is going through something, let us know. We'd love to add you. Let Carl know specifically, but we'll get you added to the list of people doing that. It's a great way to reach out and, and care for care for people. Any other prayer updates, situations that uh, you want us to be aware of or praying for? Yes. So they're in, this family's in Turkey? Okay. Is this a, a family you connect with through Facebook? Yeah. Sometimes I unnecessarily say bad things about social media and Facebook, and it's not all good, but there's the good side of it where Fashid is able to minister to people literally around the world through, uh, through something like the Internet and Facebook and, and be able to care for people, and so, yeah. Thought you were gonna make it through, Marsha, to the prayer time without anybody. Mis- <laughs> no, Monday. Monday you're having kidney surgery. Yeah. Jackie was saying that their oldest son's mother-in-law has been placed on hospice, and so continue to pray for Raper family and in-laws. That's right, you mentioned Elma. Yeah, and another one of their friends has gone through heart surgery. And Last week, Dove and Jackie spent the whole day on the road going to funerals and hospitals, and <laughs> I caught them in the middle of it. So, yeah, James.
still that waiting period. Yeah. Yeah, thanks, Jim. Some of you have gotten to know the Stegner family. Uh, so Tom and Linda Law and their, their daughter Lisa and Stegners, they were able uh, to meet their adoptive uh, daughter this last, this last week. And so they were really excited about that. They've been waiting a long, long time. Uh, it's been a couple of years since Gideon passed away just right after his birth. And so they've really been anticipating this for a long time. So they're excited. It'll be a while before they're able to make it back up here from Texas, but, but they, were, they were sending pictures and updates and, and really excited for them. Yeah. Yeah, there's a waiting period before a mother can sign away, uh, release rights, and, and be able to have that, have that child. And so that's a, you don't want to let your heart go out too far, just not knowing what will happen in an adoption situation like that, but we do want to pray for the Stegners for sure during this time. Continue to pray for uh, our community, for, for more high school and the people that are affected. I would point, you out, uh, point out to you on that calendar section above the prayer request, next Wednesday night, during this Wednesday night teaching time at, at 6.30, Jack Poe is going to lead a one-night workshop about responding to trauma and grief, uh, people who have dealt with trauma and grief, not just related to that. This, this goes far beyond just what happened at the high school, but it was prompted by what happened at the high school. So over here in room 200, we'll still be in here doing a, a time of Bible study, but if you know people who are dealing with trauma and grief, going through difficult situations, that this, something like this could be a help to them, Jack has ministered after the Oklahoma City bombing. He's ministered after the 9-11 events. He's been involved in a lot of different things related to that. And we even went over to more police department uh, this last week. He's been over there. So if this is something that you know people would benefit from or you would benefit from because of things that have happened in your life, next Wednesday night at, at 630, Jack will be leading that just right across the hallway. So it'll be a, a great opportunity uh, to, to take advantage of. So I want you to make sure you're uh, you're aware of that. And speaking of prayer, we're going to do a prayer room lunch on March 1st, Sunday, March 1st. So if you're part of the prayer room, we'd love for you to be a part of that lunch. And if you're interested in being a part of the prayer room, being a part of the prayer ministry, come to that lunch. Let me know so we can plan enough food, but uh, let me know about that so, so we can get that settled. All right, let's pray together, and then we'll, uh, we'll have this time of Bible study. Father, thank you for the gift, as Jordan uh, mentioned earlier, the gift of being able to gather together, to, to focus on you, to sing together. Even the time a few minutes ago when the guitar stopped and the voices singing out together, God, that's a beautiful testimony to your grace in our lives. God, thank you for what it means even that a church gathers to sing together, to pray together. Father, we come together around your word as we end up our time tonight thinking about how your word is the foundation for our lives and for our future. So many things going on in the world, so many people that we're praying for and situations that are happening. 
And when it seems like everything is shaking, everything can be going bad, your word is the foundation. Your word never fails. It never goes away. And our hope is secure in Christ. And so, God, let us never forget that. Let us remember that in a special way tonight. Father, thank you for the work that you're doing here in, at Emmaus. Thank you for the work you're doing in so many churches in this area during this time. God, we praise you for the body of Christ. God, we thank you for what it means to be connected together with so many incredible churches. Seeing those uh, men walking down the hallway earlier with those elementary guys and serving with them. God, thank you for the kids' ministry that happens here on Wednesday night, for our preschoolers, for our teenagers, for college and music and so many things that go on, God, the way you bring our lives together. God, we're thankful for that, especially thankful for those that are serving with our kids and, and our teenagers tonight. God, help us as we go through these verses tonight, some very, very difficult verses to understand, and we, we want to handle this well and understand the impact on our lives, and so God, give us wisdom and, and grace as we do that, and we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, I want to read some of these verses, and then I'm going to make a couple of statements begging for your patience and not to throw anything at me, and then we're going to go back through and we're going to talk about the verses. So let's read some verses. I'm going to beg for a couple of things, and then we're going to go back and try to study these a little, little bit at a time. So Matthew 24, starting in verse 15. Matthew 24, 15. So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down to take what is in his house. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant, for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that your flight may not be in winter or on Sabbath. For then there will be great tribulation, such as not been from the beginning of the world until now, no, and will never be. And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Then if anyone says to you, look, here's the Christ, or there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders, so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you beforehand. So if they say to you, look, he is in the wilderness, do not go out. If they say, look, he is in their inner rooms, do not believe it. For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. From the fig tree learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see all these things, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. 
Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. May God bless the reading of his word. Okay, now's my time to beg, and then we look at these, uh, then we look at these verses. So if you'll take a quick glance at that half sheet of paper that, that I put in front of you, we're not, this isn't really a study guide. This is not something we're, we're following. It's just some notes that might be good for reflection. But down at the bottom of that front side, I put a couple of important reminders for interpretation. Uh, so a couple of things to keep in mind. When we're interpreting Scripture, one thing we have to remember is the importance of consistency. It's so tempting to interpret one part this way and then turn around and open, interpret another part another way because we don't like the way they sound or the way they fit together. We're aiming for consistency here. We want to be clear with what we're doing. The other thing is to remember the importance of context, how a scripture is given, or sometimes we talk about genre. Genre means the type of scripture that's being given. Is this a law section? Is it a letter? Is it a prophecy? What type of scripture is being given here? And when we're dealing with prophetic scriptures, or we're dealing with what we sometimes call apocalyptic scriptures, these big symbolic imageries, and we think about the end of the world, those type of things, those particular scriptures require a lot of attention <laughs> because you can find yourself just all over the page on how to interpret these things. And, and down here, this idea of pur purpose of prophecy, that when we think about prophecy in scripture, oftentimes prophecy can have a short-term reference or a short-term impact and it can also have a longer-term impact or a longer-term reference and sometimes the same prophecy is trying to do both it's trying to give a short-term and a long-term and we want to make sure we we think through how that works the next thing is remembering how our larger theological frameworks impacts the way we interpret scripture now you say owen i didn't come here tonight to go to class Sorry, it just is what it is. But uh, here's what I mean by this. Here's what I mean by this. When you take larger theological framework and you take personal background into consideration, here's what I mean. When we come to Scripture to interpret Scripture, we can't help but bring all of our personal baggage with us, okay? And we can't help but bring all of our upbringing with us. And let's be honest, when we come to passages like this, if you've read the Left Behind novels, you just can't help but bring the Left Behind novels to a passage like this. Or if you grew up in a church that was big on prophetic conferences or big on prophecy or you have, you've been around it, you just can't help but bring that with you. Um, or if you grew up in a place that was really big, premillennial, dispensational, and you had your school-filled reference Bible, you just can't help but bring it with you to this, okay? And I'm not saying anything about that is wrong or bad. I'm just saying when we come to passages like this, any passage in scripture, we bring our past with us. And we bring this big framework for understanding scripture, we bring it to scripture. What we wanna make sure we're doing is we're allowing scripture to continue to critique and think about our larger framework and then our framework impacts scripture and you get in this really nice cycle that, that develops. E, at the bottom of your note sheet, is good old-fashioned humility. Uh, this is one of those areas that we should feel humble before Scripture. If you, let me say this carefully, but, but I, I need you to hear me on this. If you encounter a teacher of prophecy who comes off particularly prideful, man, that's a warning sign right there. 
if you encounter someone who is dealing with prophetic, apocalyptic text, and they come off prideful, that's, that, I, I, I literally just repeated myself, but yeah, that's a warning sign. That's a, that's a red flag right there. We, we need to feel a, a sense of humility right here responding to these. And then hear me out on this last phrase because it could come across wrong, and I don't mean it that way. Scripture is written for us, but not to us. Now here's that idea in interpreting Scripture that I mean here. We are not the original audience. We are not the original recipients of the scriptural writings, but by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, they are written for us. They are written for all believers in all times, so we receive them as scriptures, but the way we interpret them, we need to remember that we are not the original recipients of, of the text, and so we want to understand it as those original recipients would have understood it. How does it impact God's people, and how do we receive it? So, um, couple things to keep in mind. All right, as we get in these verses, here's a couple of things to keep in mind. Go back to verse 3 of chapter 24. We're trying to figure out how to understand 15 to 35. That's our goal tonight. This is part one of two. We'll finish it next Wednesday night, so if it feels incomplete, it is. It's, we're doing 15 to 35 tonight. We'll finish the rest next Wednesday night. Though everybody may end up in Jack's grief workshop after tonight. So you may have your own trauma after tonight and end up in, in Jack's, Jack's workshop. Look in 24 verse 3. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately. This is right after Jesus has told them that the temple will be destroyed. That not one stone will be left upon another. The disciples come to him in 24.3 and they say, tell us, when will these things be? So when will all these stones fall apart? When will this temple fall down? When will this destruction happen? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? We talked a couple of weeks ago on Sunday morning about how for the disciples, those two questions would have been interlocked. The destruction of the temple, all these stones falling apart, and the coming of Christ, the end of all things. They would have seen those as locked together. Jesus, in Matthew 24, seems to deal with the two questions separately. He takes the first question, when will these be? When will these things happen? When will the temple be destroyed? When will all these stones fall apart? And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put before you tonight an argument that his answer to that question runs from verse 4 down to verse 35. And then the second part of that, the coming of Christ, the second coming and the end of all things— is picked up in 36 and carried through the rest of the chapter. Now, let me state up front. That's probably not the way you heard it presented growing up in church. I'm, I'm going to be honest with you there. This probably It's going to feel a little bit different. You're going to find yourself wanting to, to argue with me a couple of times in here, and I'm telling you that's a good thing. That, that is perfectly fine. We're trying to work our way through here and understand how is Jesus dealing with these questions. The destruction of the temple... And his second coming, the end of all things. How is he answering those two questions for the disciples? As he answers those, and as we interpret these scriptures, remember, when you're dealing with prophecy, and you're dealing with the book of Revelation, and you're dealing with the book of Daniel, the Old Testament and a history book is way better than a newspaper and an internet article. Okay? So hear me again. When you're dealing with prophecy and you're dealing with Revelation, the Old Testament and a good history book 
are going to be way better than a modern newspaper and an internet article because the way that prophecy comes to us, the way that we, the book of Revelation, the book of Daniel, Matthew 24, they come loaded with Old Testament language. If we try to read biblical prophecy apart from the Old Testament and apart from the way that it plays itself out in history, we start to really get off into left field fast, okay? So, so we want to stay tied in here to, to the Old Testament. I think a lot of what we're going to find tonight as we get into these verses is this tension between how much of it has already happened, how much of these verses has already occurred, and how much of these verses are meant to point to the future. And I'm going to tell you that I think there's a way we can say both to a lot of that. That a lot of what we're going to read here, I believe, is a reference to the fall of the temple in AD 70. It's a reference to the, the Jewish-Roman war that happened from 66 to 70. We're going to find a lot of it tied in there. But the way it happened, the fact that it happens, becomes a pattern. It, it lays out some principles for how the end of all things will happen. And, and so it pertains to the second coming of Christ, but primarily, I'm going to argue tonight, it has to do with Jesus' first question. When will the temple fall? When will it be destroyed? How will that happen? So, now that I've confused everybody, let's go back to the verses, and we'll work our way through here, okay? Verse 15. So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand what's being said here, let the reader of Scripture, then let those who are in Judea Flee to the mountains. So Jesus is saying that when you see the abomination of desolation standing in the holy place, this was spoken of by Daniel, then you know that whatever he's speaking of is, is about to come to pass. What is the abomination of desolation standing in the holy place? Because if we know that, it's going to give us an indicator that what Jesus is talking about is coming to fulfillment. Church I grew up in, Good chance the teaching of this that we hear is primarily related to this is the Antichrist who will come at the end of time to set himself up in the holy place. A lot of times it's even framed as the Antichrist will come at the end of time and will set him up, himself up in the new temple that's going to be rebuilt in Jerusalem. This is how you get very, very quickly into internet articles and theories about when and how the temple is going to be re rebuilt in Jerusalem. And if that's the way you're trained to think, it's really hard to think of anything else at, at this point. But the question is, is that what Jesus is referencing here? I don't think so. I, I think he's primarily speaking of something else here. What's the original abomination of desolation that Daniel spoke of? Well, the original abomination of desolation that Daniel spoke of goes back to the year 167 B.C. 167 B.C., uh, a ruler named Antiochus, Antiochus Epiphanes, comes in and he desecrates the temple. He comes in and they slaughter a pig on the altar and the temple is profaned and the Sabbath is abolished and the Old Testament law is disallowed. And that is the original reference to the abomination of desolation, which sparks something called the Maccabean War. You have this family that comes in, and they begin to try to purify, and that leads to what we know of as Hanukkah, when the temple is repurified, and Israel gains a period of independence before the Romans come in and, and cause a lot of trouble. But it goes back to this idea of a pagan 
ruler, a pagan power, being set up in the temple and desecrating the temple. Now, what's going on right here? When you see this abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel staying in the holy place, Jesus seems to be referring to something that his original hearers would have been able to see or experience or see it play itself out. He seems to still be answering this first question about when the temple is going to fall. So what's it probably a reference to? What it's probably a reference to is in A.D. 66, a war breaks out between the Jews and the Romans. And in that time, leading up to A.D. 70, there's this war that takes place that is just awful, that goes on. The, the Romans come in, and they ultimately gather around Jerusalem, and they create a siege, and food is cut off, and they end up burning the city and burning the temple. And then the Roman military moves into the temple area, and they set up their pagan emblems in the place that sacrifices would have taken place. And there's even references that they begin to make sacrifices, pagan sacrifices, in the temple area. So what's this for reference to? I would say there's a good chance that it's referring to when Rome will come in and the temple will be destroyed and you will again have a pagan army, a pagan ruler, setting up shop in the temple. Again, is Jesus possibly pointing to a far future reference at the end of time? Possibly, but right here he seems to be referring to that. Because look at verse 16. He says, when you see these things happen, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. It's quite likely this is exactly what happens. In about 67, 68, in the middle of that war, you have a group of Christians who get out of Jerusalem and they flee to a place called Pella. Uh, and they're getting out of town. <laughs> they're getting out of Dodge, so to speak. And so it seems like there are a group of Christians who do exactly what Jesus said to do. When you see this Roman military army coming in and Jerusalem being surrounded and the temple going to fall, get out of Dodge. This is not a time to st stick around and fight. There are groups of people that do stick around and fight. There's a group called the Zealots. They stick around and they try to fight the Romans. That doesn't go well. There's another group that waits until too late and they run to a place called Masada. The problem is, when they run to Masada, Masada is this massive plateau, cliffs on three sides, and the Roman military builds a ramp on only one side, and ultimately, you have this massacre that turns into a mass suicide at, at some point there at Masada, and so they find themselves trapped. That happens, though, essentially too late. They made that run too late where there's a group of Christians that run to Pella and they find safety and are able to get out of, the, out of Jerusalem. So that's, that's verse 16. Verse 17. Let the one who was on the housetop not go down to take what is in his house and let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, it will be terrible. Pray that your flight may not be in winter. Why? Well, because the roads are mush, the conditions are terrible, and that it not be on the Sabbath. Why? Nothing's open for business. <laughs> this is blue laws to the extreme. There's nothing open for business. You don't want to be running on, on the Sabbath. You're not going to find any help. Ah, then verse 21. Here we go. Again, for then... There will be great tribulation, 
such has not been from the beginning of the world until now, no, and never will be. Now, it's tough to hear the phrase great tribulation and not allow all of our background and thoughts about what great tribulation refers to. Does anyone's translation, is any of the translation, are any of the translations tempted to put the T-H-E before great tribulation? Does anybody have T-H-E before great, is it just there will be great tribulation? Good, that's good, yeah. Sometimes we find ourselves inserting T-H-E, the, and then we capitalize the G and capitalize the T as in the great tribulation. Jesus is saying here, there will be great tribulation such as not been from the beginning of the world until now, no, and never will be. The way he phrases that doesn't sound like an end of the world reference. Why would he say that this coming event is going to be so bad that it's never been this bad and it never will be this bad again? That would be a strange reference if he was speaking about purely the end of all things. He seems to be talking about something that's going to be incredibly terrible, and after that, never anything will be this bad again. It's also language that's pretty common to prophecy, just to say what's coming is going to be really, really terrible. And it was really, really terrible. When you read some of the historical references, they come to us primarily from a writer named Josephus. Josephus is prone to exaggeration uh, a lot. But even the way he speaks about this war and about the siege on Jerusalem and the destruction is, is really awful. I mean, some of the stuff, it's just, it's stomach-turning, to be honest with you, the way that he talks about how bad this situation gets during, during this time. Here's the kicker, though. Look at verse 36 for a second. Verse 36 of Matthew. So past this portion that we're, talk, we're talking about. I'm sorry, verse 34. Verse 34, we're kind of jumping ahead. Verse 34 says, Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take a place. What happens if you make 15 to 35 purely about the future you've really got to dance around the phrase this generation. <laughs> because Jesus seems to be speaking of something here that's going to take place within this generation. And so good, Bible-loving, Jesus-loving commentators who say this is purely about the future, they have to dance all around the phrase generation and say this generation just refers to all humankind or, or all Jewish people. Or all. The problem is you just don't ever find that in Scripture. Generally speaking, when it says this generation, it means this generation, this group of people living right now at this time. And so Jesus seems to be saying what, you're, what I'm talking about is going to happen in a time that this generation could experience it. Okay, go back to verse 22. So you go back to verse 22. Sorry about that. And he says, if those days, the days that I'm talking about of this great tribulation had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Uh, again, is this the elect at the end of time? He seems to be referring to a group of people, a remnant. God always has a remnant in times of crisis. You go back to the Old Testament, there's always a remnant in times of tribulation, in times of crisis. Verse 23, if anyone says to you, look, here's the Christ, or there he is, do not believe it. 
For false prophets, or false Christ and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. We have references to Josephus, that that's exactly what happened in the time leading up to the Jewish-Roman War, that you had false Christ and false prophets seeking to lead the people astray. Now, will something like that happen near the second coming of Christ? It may well be an exact pattern of that, but what's Jesus referring to here? He seems to be referring to something that's going to happen leading up to the destruction of Jerusalem. Verse 28, or verse 25, I'm sorry. See, I told you this beforehand. So if they say to you, look, he's out in the wilderness, don't go out there. If they say, look, he's in the inner rooms, don't believe that either. For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. You want to see, you know, you see a group of birds circling, and you know, well, there's obviously something going on right there. He's saying, you're not going to be able to miss this. This is going to be obvious what's going to happen. Now, verse 29. So immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. See, Owen, I told you it was talking about the end of time. Obviously, it's right there. It's talking about the end of time. How can this be a reference to what happened in A.D. 70? I'm glad you have an Old Testament in your Bible, all right? Isaiah, chapter 13. This is where the Old Testament references come into play. So Isaiah, chapter 13. How can language about the sun being darkened and the moon not giving light and the stars falling from heaven, how can that not be an obvious reference to the end of all things? Well, when you go back to the book of Isaiah and you look at chapter 13, if your Bible has those bold uh, headings above the chapter or above the verses kind of leading into the chapter, it probably says something about the judgment of Babylon at the beginning of Isaiah 13. Judgment of Babylon, judgment of, of a foreign nation. So you get on to verse 9, 13, 9. Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel with wrath and fierce anger, to make the land a desolation and to destroy its sinners from it. For the stars of the heavens and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be dark at its rising, and the moon will not shed its light. Hey, that's interesting. Like, that sounds really familiar language. It's language that's used for the fall of Babylon. So you have an evil foreign power, Babylon. Isaiah prophesies that Babylon will fall, this foreign power will fall, and it's this language about the sun being dark in this use. Now go over to Isaiah chapter 34. We'll come back to Isaiah again at the very end for another passage, but Isaiah 34. So you have another section here about the judgment on the nations. This is going to be the judgment on, on Edom. 34, verse 3. Their slain shall be cast out, and the stench of their corpses shall rise. The mountains shall flow with their blood. It sounds very familiar to Josephus' description. All the host of heaven shall rot away. And the skies roll up 
like a scroll. From an Old Testament perspective, when you have the sun being darkened, the moon not shining, the stars falling, that's not about a cosmological reference. That's not saying anything about astronomy or anything happening. It's referring to these foreign nations falling, these pagan nations falling. Now, here's the impact of Jesus' statement in, in Matthew 24. You go back to Matthew 24, 24, 29 in Matthew. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. In the Old Testament, that's a judgment against Babylon and Edom. Now what has become? It's a judgment against Israel. It's a judgment against the temple, which is exactly what Jesus was doing in chapter 23, is this coming judgment against the house of Israel, this coming judgment against the, the people. And he's saying that in this generation, this judgment will take place. And this nation that thought it was for the Lord, that always said it was for the Lord, is now going to experience the judgment of God. How? Well, the temple is going to be destroyed. It's going to be destroyed in A.D. 70 through this conflict that happens, this tribulation leading up to this. Verse 30. Surely Owen will get it right in verse 30. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Okay, there's no way that that cannot be about, about the end of the world. How could that have anything to do with what happens in, in A.D. 70. Well, let's, let's kind of work through this. The first part of verse 30 says, Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man. When I read that, I can't help but in my little Southern Baptist kid's Sunday school self seeing Jesus hanging out in the clouds coming back. Like that's just, that's immediately what, what, what comes to mind right there. Someone read the King James translation of, of verse 30. On, so read out the beginning of verse 30 for us in, in King James. Not New King James, but if you still have KJV, King James. Everybody move to NKJV? Okay, give us New King James. Go, go for it. Yeah, just the first part of verse 30. Perfect. Ah, okay. Okay, I'm going to read mine. I'm going to hear Randy's, okay? Here we go. Mine says, Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man. Okay, now you go with yours. Okay, I know that doesn't sound much different, but, but here's, the, here's the difference. The way that language is put together can either make you sound, sound like here comes the Son of Man who's going to appear in the heavens, and here he comes. The way that it reads out, though, is there's going to be a sign that will happen that shows that the Son of Man is in heaven. So there will be some type of sign. It doesn't mean, in the way the language works itself out, that that sign will be in heaven. There will be a sign that the Son of Man is in heaven, that that, that is exactly what is happening. So look at the, look at the end of that verse. What happens at the end of verse 30? They will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. That's Daniel language. That's really, really strong. Daniel 7, 
13 and 14 type language. That reference to the Son of Man coming in power and glory in Daniel 7 is not the Son of Man coming to earth. It's the Son of Man coming to his enthronement with the Father, with the Ancient of Days in heaven. So it's, when it says coming with power and glory, it's the Son coming to his rightful place to sit on the throne in power and glory with the Father. So what will be the sign that that has happened? It seems to be that the temple is destroyed. So here's the way the logic works, okay? Here's the way this works. If I'm right, if I'm wrong, just say, man, you took up a lot of time with that. But if, let's assume that this is right. Here's the logic. Here's this teacher coming around 30 A.D., 31 A.D., 32 A.D., and he's saying that this temple is going to fall and that judgment is going to come on Israel, and then he dies, and some people say that he comes back to life, and, and people continue to talk about this, and then along about, you know, what, 38 years later, uh, you have this experience where the temple is destroyed, and that becomes a sign that the Son of Man is now enthroned in heaven. So if you were wondering whether or not this Jesus guy was right about his claims, if you wonder whether or not he really is the Son of God, whether he is the Messiah to come, whether he really is enthroned in heaven, what will be the sign that that's true? Well, for the people, it will be a sign that will come too late. It will be the destruction of the temple. It will be the judgment that will come against the, the people of God. And what will happen as a result of that, right in the middle of 30, all the tribes of the earth will mourn. Right in the middle of verse 30, all the tribes of the earth will mourn. Do any of the uh, translations say something like all the nations of the earth will mourn? Yeah, that is just, that's an unfortunate translation right there. Uh, the reference there is specifically to tribes which doesn't seem to be about all the nations of the earth, like all the Gentiles' nations mourning. Who's mourning here? It seems very specifically to be the tribes of Israel because judgment has come upon the house of Israel. It's come upon the temple and the people will mourn. And then in verse 31, verse 31 has to be about the end. Surely, Owen, it has to be about the end. Verse 31, he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call and they will gather his elect from the four winds from the one end of heaven to the other. That right there, certainly in our minds, in our church backgrounds, that feels very much like this trumpet announcing the second coming of, of the Lord. But notice that this verse doesn't say that this will happen instantaneously. And, and what it may be a reference to is when it says that the trumpet call will go out and his angels will go out and they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other, it may likely be that that is exactly what we're living through right now. That this, after the destruction of the temple, that you will continue to see people drawn to the Lord. You will continue to see the elect of the Lord gathered together as the angels go out. Remember, angels can also just be a reference to messengers. So it, divine messengers. It may be a reference to missionaries. It may be a reference just to the spiritual power that is behind the gospel going out. And that the elect of God will be gathered from all the corners of, of the earth. Verse 32. From the fig tree learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. I've given you signs to tell you when this is going to happen. 
So also, when you see these things, know that he is near at the very gates. Uh, Again, he is near can just as easily be translated, it is near. I think the King James has it is near instead of he is near. And there may be other translations that have that as well. That word can go either it or he. And then verse 34, truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until you see all these things take place. These things that have been mentioned up to this point. Heaven and earth will pass away. And you say, I told you, Owen, I told you it was about the end of all things, that that heaven and earth will pass away. Two things. One, that's kind of stock language for prophetic language of things will come to an end. Also, here's the thing. Heaven and earth, the temple was thought to be a picture of heaven and earth. It was where heaven and earth met. And even the temple itself, the way it was constructed, was meant to be a picture of the heavens and the earth. And so if that's what's going on here, heaven and earth might pass away. So what you think is heaven and earth, this temple might pass away. But Jesus says, my words will never pass away. What I am doing is not going to stop. And then in verse 36, he says, oh yeah, but concerning that day and hour, no one knows. So it's almost like he's turning to another question, a question that's going to be pointing toward, toward the future. Now, let's end in this way, because we are running quickly out of time, and I don't want there to be any time for questions at the end. So uh, <laughs> if I plan this really well, there's no time for questions at the end. All right, Isaiah chapter 40. Isaiah chapter 40, let's end there. Um, it's a good p- place to bring all this, all this together and, and for us to think about the impact of it. Isaiah 40 is where we're, uh, where we're trying to get to. So again, what have I tried to do tonight? What I've tried to do tonight is take a teaching of Jesus in Matthew 24 that those of us who grew up in a certain church background, we think about this only in reference to the future, but there's good reasons to think that that particular teaching of Jesus had a very clear reference to the destruction of Jerusalem, destruction of the temple in AD 70, and he's setting the stage for people to think about, okay, what, what do I understand about the coming of Christ? But let's wrap up in this way because next week we'll get to the, the future part of that, that section. This week I want to end up in this way. Isaiah 40, starting in verse 6. Isaiah 40, verse 6. A voice says, cry. And I said, What shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord falls on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our Lord will stand forever. Then remember how Isaiah 40 ends. Let's pick up in verse 25, Isaiah 40, 25. To whom will you compare me, that I should be like him, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes on high and see who created all these. He who brings out their host by, one, or host by number, calling them all by name. By the greatness of his might, because he is strong in power, not one is missing. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and my cause is disregarded by my God? Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not 
grow faint or weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youth shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But those who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not be faint. All right, let's pray together. Father, we thank you for those promises from Isaiah 40, that your words will never fail. Your words will never pass away. God, even when we look around at the world and there can be so much turmoil in our world, we think about Jesus' teaching to those disciples of the judgment that was to come and, and the destruction of the temple and all the chaos that would come with that. Even when all those things are happening, you were sovereign, you were in control. God, help us to remember that. God, as we look at the world around us, as we think about our own lives, God, may we come to trust your word more and more every day. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, have a great night. Thanks again for being here.